0: Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. This week I've got another very special guest, which is uh, Judge Patrick Dandridge of the Environmental Court. You know, we've done quite a few shows about about blight and recently did a show about receivership. And so I think listeners are going to be very interested. People, a lot of people have heard about the environmental court and maybe cussed it out a few times, but people don't really understand um, how it works and all the challenges and the the progress it's helping uh, make in our community. So I invited Judge Dandridge to come on and just share about that. So welcome. So Judge, just before we start talking about the court, um, Tell tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, you're. I'm interested in how you got into sort of the blight business, as it were. But also, like, did you grow up in Memphis and what neighborhood? I love to ask people, you know, what neighborhood they grew up in since I'm so into neighborhoods.
1: Well, I am a native Memphian. I grew up in uh, Memphis. I'm from the area called Barden Heights. It's very close to Westwood in South Memphis. Um, I um, went off to school. Or I graduated from... Went to Campus Elementary School. I went to Bearview Junior High School at that time. Central High School, and I graduated from Central in 1983. Um, I went to Georgetown University undergrad in Washington D.C., and then I uh, went to Georgetown Law School in Washington D.C. Came back to Memphis, and uh, and I've been here ever since. Since that time, I came back. I don't of think I know 19- you went to Georgetown. 94.
0: So did you did you ever consider going anywhere else, or was your plan always to come back to Memphis?
1: Oh no! I was considering going somewhere else. Um, my plan was not to come back to Memphis, but I did come back to Memphis. Got married, had kids, and yeah,
0: we know how uh, that we're, is. We're you get too. you get stuck in a good way, but you get stuck. So the um, right. so I first met you um, when you were working for the Division of Housing Community Development. But did you was that you, your career from the beginning in community development, or did you take another path?
1: Another path, uh, just typical law. I have a law practice for many years. Uh, once I got out of law school, started practicing in Washington, D.C. Then when I came to Memphis in 1981. I graduated from law school. So in 1984 I came here, started practicing here. I was assistant city attorney part time for many years. And I finally got to housing community development in 2007. And I was assigned as an assistant city attorney at that time. Working uh, initially with code enforcement—that's kind of when I got my beginnings into code enforcement and and so light things that, um, about that time.
0: What? Obviously, um, there must have been something that appealed to you about that—that that sort of niche of law. Um, what was it?
1: Well, I, I tell everybody about it all the time. I just so happened to arrive in this field. It was not pre-planned at all. Uh, I was just a typical lawyer practice uh, practicing law. And uh, when I decided to go full time with the city of Memphis, I had a decision to make in which area I wanted to go into. And it just so happened that housing community development with house uh, code enforcement, a lot of other matters. Uh, I just thought that was more intriguing. So since I had a choice, <laughs> uh, this, the then city attorney gave me a choice, I said, oh, I want to try this one. I did not know uh, all that it entailed at that time. Um, but I bet. Well, that, I'm glad to hear you say career.
0: that because I'm, I've had a lot of different careers, and and none of them have really been planned. And I've just kind of ended up doing things, and like got an internship and never left, and you know, and, and have done a lot of interesting things. Right. But um, but also a person who who didn't really have a game plan, but just ended up going kind of going in interesting directions when they presented themselves. So, um,
1: That's
0: right. <laughs> so you have been environmental court judge for I think you said for five years, is that right? And a lot of people, Sorry. certainly in the community yeah. development world, remember Judge Potter who who started the environmental court. And I, I want to talk about what's special about the environmental court, but um, but before, they just sort of explain. I mean, I know it's a local court and not a federal court, but kind of explain where it fits in the, I don't know, court hierarchy is the right word. I think you said it's a it's it's technically part of the criminal court. Anyway, elaborate on that a little bit, if you would.
1: So it's a it's a unique specialty court It's very similar to uh, in the specialty court regard as drug court or juvenile court. So it has its own life of its own. Uh, it is housed in criminal court. It's a general sessions criminal court, Division 14. This is actual title in criminal court. So um, I'm a typical Tennessee general sessions court. However, I become a court of record for certain nuisance actions that are and, a for my court. It's also a unique court. Say that again. To, go ahead.
0: Go ahead. I interrupted you.
1: It's also a unique court. Yeah, you need court similar to juvenile court in regards to um is a criminal court, is housing criminal court, but ninety-five percent of my cases or so are civil, municipal ordinances. So in that regards is unique. But I also hear state statutes. Well yeah, I was gonna ask, but it didn't seem
0: like I don't remember hearing about anybody going to prison for failing to fix up their property, but I guess it's a I guess it's a possibility. <laughs>
1: It is actually a possibility. One of the things, uh, the tools that we have, is that uh, I can place someone on a court order to clean their property within a specific time. If they fail to do so, I could be charged with contempt. And if it's found to be willful, they can have up to 10 days to in jail. And that could be repeated actions. Okay. A violation that's good of the to court know order for that, 10 that
0: days. You've got that stick. <laughs> So um, I've always right. been, of course, I've known about the environmental court for a long time, and I've always understood it to be innovative in that our community um, right. and not all places have an environmental court. so so um, I mean, is it is that the case and how did it get um, how did it get started? Who sort of came up with the idea and thought, you know we, we have such a volume of cases here. we really need a dedicated court?
1: It is definitely a, um, innovative court, uh, when, uh, Judge Larry Potter was the only other Shelby County environmental court judge. And at the time in 1983, when it was actually a part of the city of Memphis municipal court, um, he had an ideal, of dealing with seeing what he was dealing with, that it was time to address it. So some cases were coming before his court. Uh, but they were mixed with traffic in all the other cases, and by the time it got to this particular, or in this case, and dealing with housing, housing code violation, people were not really interested. It was not given the amount of time and devotion that it needed, and so that's when the uh, creation of the environmental court uh, was. Is it created the only
0: one of its kind? At,
1: and in 1991, it was one of probably about three. Uh, but now there are a lot of them, uh, dealing um, mainly with housing code violations and type of uh, issues in municipal ordinances but yes it's a lot more now uh, today is become I would like to think more of a common thing now because as we deal with increased amount of blight which is no longer unique uh, around the country uh, then well, it's great that we could
0: that, I mean the environmental court, could become a model, it sounds like it's become a model for other communities.
1: Correct, it became just part of made it his, uh, one of his missions to go around uh, the country, including the state of Tennessee, to uh, introduce environmental court and show the uh, positive aspects- it really makes a lot of that sense. that it can have on the Well,
0: and another thing, um, and, and, and this may came, come up again later, but another thing I think of as innovative about the environmental court is that you take the court to outside of the courthouse downtown, um, kind of into the field and, um, and hear cases there. So tell me about that.
1: Yeah, so right now we used to have four, we have three now, we're hoping to expand to five. Uh, the concept of our community court um, is that some of the smaller uh, uh, cases that can come into compliance relatively quickly uh, can be uh, heard at a neighborhood uh, community court or community center near where you live, where the violation is. Uh, so that concept is you can come there and come into compliance relatively quickly without having to come all the way downtown. In addition, additional resources can be provided locally. Well then, what neighborhoods are, are you in and where do you hope to expand to if you can? Right now we are in uh, Frazier, uh, Hickory Hill, and we also have um, an operation okay. in, um, Crosstown, Crosstown, more like Midtown. We used to have, um, a community court in Whitehaven, which we lost. So we hope to, uh, get White Haven back, possibly open up Orange Mound. Orange Mound used to be a, a community court. It, uh, closed down. We're hoping to combine Frazier and Raleigh into one community center, hopefully the Raleigh civic center. <laughs> so we're hoping to have that done keep Hickory Hill, Possibly expand out to Cordova. Uh, we want to go in areas where there is increased amount of flight uh, and code violations, so that it can be corrected easily. Well, uh, I love I love the idea right
0: of <laughs> having it. Are there special? I mean, may, I'm not. Of course, I'm not an attorney. Are there special considerations? Can you just, as the judge, say okay? this this body is going to meet in this location on you know once a month on the second Tuesday or are there special legal hurdles you have to go through to get certified that's not the right word but you know what I mean
1: They're not really any illegal hurdles uh, there are some aspects where it takes coordination I have to have a deputy sheriff available I have to have a prosecutor available and also have to have a space <laughs> um, but the other aspect is that it it, it it does require we did a walkability study uh, about a year or so ago just to try to determine uh, where the major code violations were and um, how close in proximity uh, some of the community centers. That's our preference to have in the community centers. Uh, we will open up to any, any form of building that we can. Well, that uh, makes sense because that's where uh, people
0: are used to going. And it's also a. A government property, so that makes a lot of sense. So, um, so of course, most of us who live in you know urban neighborhoods are familiar with you know code violations, anywhere from something small to something a really major blighted property. So, how do um, I like to think in, in an ideal world, environmental courts, the sort of the last. You know one of the it's not the first stage but it's pretty far along but um i could be wrong so tell me about the process like if i if i let's just say i'm going for a walk and i see a severely blighted property i get on my app i i it's been like that for a long time i get in my app i complain about it um on the 411 app so from there and i realize that it's not just citizen cases um uh, you know, a lot of different people can bring um, can bring complaints to you. But just looking at that, when a citizen makes a complaint, what does the process look like to get into your court?
1: So let me tell you, first of all, so overwhelmingly, the number of cases uh, that we have, and I mean, overwhelmingly, is uh, brought by the government. So uh, the district attorney's office hearing cases on, on behalf okay. of the city of Memphis, as well as Shelby County. So the- this violation come. Now, there are some city cases where city prosecutor, city of Memphis attorneys are bringing the Neighborhood Preservation Act type cases. Um, The typical complaint uh, is uh, we don't bring our own cases. I'm I'm a typical court. So just like any court, court doesn't go out. Oh, no, I know. Yes. So in order to get into court, you have to complain, literally uh, file a complaint rather 311 through the city of Memphis or 222-2300 for Shelby County uh, to actually call in a complaint that you observe and you call that complaint in and that particular code inspector or whatever the governmental personnel body is will go out to inspect and determine whether or not that's a violation. You normally get what's called a notice to correct or a warning or a courtesy notice uh, from the department letting you know you're in violation, giving you an opportunity to come into compliance. And then after that, at the discretion of the municipal uh, department, they'll uh, summons sort or of cite the person. Well, the and before you,
0: we talk Rochester about the site. court, like do, do most cases get, um, get, do the owners do the right thing and correct the problem? <laughs>
1: And judging from the increased number of cases that I have in court, I probably have to say no. Uh, the, we have increased uh, dramatically. Let me just say this just so you get the magnitude of how big environmental court is right now. We hear approximately 1,500 environmental oh, wow. cases per month. Just imagine that. And then we also hear somewhere between three to 5,000 traffic tickets. Yeah, I hear that too, uh, per, per month. Uh, So that's why I have two referees. I can't even hear all the cases myself. So I have two referees to assist me. So um, it used to be a time in code enforcement, you know, I've been around it for a long time, that it was only in the field mostly. Most of the violations were corrected in the field. That was a period of time that was given uh, 30 days, 14 days. And most people were responsible with their properties. And if you give them more time, they could get uh, coming to compliance in the field. Well, we determined a while back when I was with the city that uh, those cases were lingering too long with the code enforcement uh, without any real recourse. So uh, now the way it exists now, I think, if I'm not mistaken, after the initial 14 days or 30 days to come into compliance, you're automatically cited to come to court. So with that new approach, that's going to- So you to don't get a second a citation
0: if you don't comply then you automatically get, um, okay. And so what, what when a case gets to court, then what?
1: So once it gets to court, then uh, the, uh, the judge, I would have to make a determination as to the nature of the violation, the individual in front of me, because every property tells a different story and then make a determination on how long it would take the person to come into compliance. Typically, you like to think the case is coming to comply within 30 to, to 90 days. Uh, on a typical violation, but sometimes they take a little longer, uh, depending on the nature of the case. So uh, I have to make a determination how long and then whether or not the person is actually making an effort to come into compliance or not. Then I can start issuing fines, then I can place them on a court order by a specific time, then I can hold them in contempt, things of that nature to try. Well, to and
0: what if, um, um, I'm, I'm guessing that sometimes people just don't show up.
1: Yeah. So if you are properly cited for, for my court and okay. you do not, show up, back in. And that
0: means they can arrest
1: you and bring right. you so in. Bench one, correct. The bench warrant arrest you, bring you in, and you have to ask before the court. So it is a criminal court. That's okay. not a I'll good keep, idea. I'll
0: keep that in mind. <laughs> the um, And I'm guessing also a lot of problem properties are in neighborhoods where the property owners might not have the resources to... Make the uh, do you talk people through what their options are? You know, have you considered selling the property or what are the options for people that don't have resources? I'm sure you you see people like that coming into the court.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, it depends on the nature of the violation. I mean, if you're a homeowner, you're an elderly person, you're living in your home, you don't have the wherewithal and the money, those type cases are perhaps my longer standing cases. Uh, that's not a willful uh, disobedience to the court order. That's not having a war with all. So uh, in, in the timing is actually perfect because now we're getting additional resources and possibly establishing an environmental court uh, foundation uh, where we're gonna start having uh, funds to assist those who are indigent and elderly and cannot really come into a a- That's a, a great idea, co-violet.
0: an environmental court foundation um, yeah, I would give to that. Sure. I mean, it's a it's a good idea, but yeah. wh- what what happens? I mean, I guess. But in the lieu of that, what happens? What happens now? I mean, I'm sure there's sometimes resources, habitat, or but there's so right. many. Um, not probably not enough resources to right. help everybody.
1: All those other agencies got a two and a half year waiting list already. So you could imagine about the time it get to that. Court. But it, uh, these are structural violations, what we're talking about now. If there are uh, violations on the property itself in terms of uh, parking on the grass or something like that, that's a different nature. Uh, most of uh, the court, we like to call is a uh, court of compliance uh, or mediation court or resolution court. It tries to find the quickest resolution to the problem that's before the court. And so if the person has the ability, has the wherewithal, then the court would be a lot more forceful and get them into compliance quickly. Uh, And then it goes down the scale, the lack of resources, the inability to uh, readily bring it into compliance, the the need for assistance, and then you go down the line and try to see if there's some sort of other uh, option. Initially, the question is always asked when you come before my court, do you agree or disagree? I mean, it is a court of law. You're innocent until proven guilty. Just because code said you're in violation doesn't mean you're actually in violation. But most of the people who come before me take that option of, judge, I just need more time. <laughs> you know, Could you give me some time to come into compliance? And I just ask them, how long do you think it's going to take you to come into compliance? And then I will assess that. But you still have to regularly come before my court and show progress, as I call well, so it. Act- so, and
0: actually, you made an important point, which which we I want to circle back to, which is that a lot of these cases are things that people could fix up. I'm thinking, you know, a lot of neighborhood leaders know about the top ten code enforcement violations. Those probably don't all come before your court, but a lot of it is parking on the grass, you know, or or overgrown you know th- brush that's grown up or a shed that's falling down in the backyard and things that most people with some volunteers or with some um could, could fix up
1: all those come before my court the top 10 co violation all come before my court i've called it now the top 10 court violation <laughs> you know, so they all they all come before my court and and again, yes, yeah, some of can they can come into compliance relatively quickly and then some cannot also repeat offenders is a common problem where you, you know, you're coming to court, you can't park on the grass and then, you know, you get out of court and a year later you parking back on the grass again. <laughs> That's contemptible. Uh, that's one of those times where now we, you did that intentionally and willfully. Now we just need to see if you need about two
0: days. So, um, so if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. We're talking to Shelby County environmental court judge, Patrick Dandridge about the environmental court, how it works and, um, and how he has the ability to put people in jail if necessary. (laughs) I'm sure that's rare, (laughs) but, um, but the, but I'm sure repeat, I mean repeat offenders, I'm sure are a thing. but also, as you and I know, there are people that own a lot of substandard house, uh, substandard property on multiple properties and some of them come before your court. Is there uh, do you have a little bit of a more aggressive approach with them?
1: Yeah, so uh, these are different types of defendants. And sometimes they're on uh, an the assumption that all the defendants are those, <laughs> those with the wherewithal, owning multiple properties, out of town or whatever. But that's not the majority of defendants that come before my court. Uh, when those types of defendants come before my court, then yes, the court can be a lot more aggressive in trying to get compliance because they have the wherewithal, multiple properties, so on and so forth. And for the most part, if they are landlords and they have tenants, then that's a whole another standard as well. That's a different type of defendant. That's a defendant that needs to come into compliance ASAP and say, for example, there's lack of heat or lack of uh, air. You need to have alternative while you're solving it. Uh, air condition provided, window units provided, you know, heat alternate, heat provided until you can correct the conditions. So some of those healthy fines are also issued on those type violations as well. Uh, those landlords have the wherewithal and are either choosing not to. And I'm guessing there are some frequent so.
0: flyers. I mean, you mentioned, you know, repeat offenders, people that you see over and over or their attorneys, if they're a big enough company.
1: Their attorneys, Correct. And we, we see them uh, often. Um, and, and sometimes a good thing, you know, attorneys have have a way to convince their client to come into compliance uh, relatively quickly. And they don't live really like when I start issuing those healthy defined and <laughs> so it encourages them to get that. So you mentioned,
0: um, you know, g- giving people more time, especially people that, um, you know, have fewer resources or maybe elderly homeowners. And um, I guess at what point is, um, you know, because it, because if, if you're a nearby resident, you know, at some point you just run out of patience. And at what point does that, even if it's a homeowner, they're elderly, at what point or can you or do you just say, you know, no, you have to, your the clock is run out?
1: Oh, I put as much pressure as I can. Uh, you just have to make a determination, just discretion into whether or not this person really does not have the ability. I'm very sensitive to homeowners uh, who have lived in their homes forever. Um, you know, 50 years or whatever now, and they've come on hard times or whatever. Those are not, the, the solution is not to put them in jail or get them out of court. The solution is to try to find uh, resources available. That's the, the reason why I'm pushing for the foundation. And this is not something unique. Judge Potter, the, the previous judge for over 30-something years, had the same idea, the same concept in terms of those lingering cases where it's hard to come into compliance. Relatively quickly, these are well, and people would accuse him of being a
0: a softy. But I mean, when you're when you're, I can Mm -hmm. relate because, like I said, there's the neighbor who's irritated by the property. It's like that needs to be fixed up. But as the judge who's face to face with someone who wants to do the right thing and just can and has lived there for seventy years, and you, it must be hard. Um, I'm sure you hear some very sad stories.
1: Yeah, th- those cases just need resources. They, they're easily solved. Uh, we just don't have enough out there. But if, if if I do my job in the next eight years, we have more resources available, churches, nonprofits to fix that problem. Uh, but a bigger another problem, I wouldn't say the bigger problem, but a big problem, it is vacant properties. Those are the ones that are the most challenging, I believe, in our city. And we have to really find unique ways to try to solve those issues. So
0: I mentioned uh, when we when I we, you and I were emailing before the interview that um, you know several months ago I had Vincent Sawyer on who's an attorney with the works CDC that works on on problem properties and we talked a little bit about receivership and neighborhood preservation act that I just wanted to touch on that not to get too much into the weeds um, but I know you have some tools at your disposal, like the being able to point um, a receiver to actually fix up a property. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, the Neighborhood Preservation Act, Tennessee Neighborhood Preservation Act, is a very, very good tool. It is a lawsuit uh, brought by the city of Memphis. It can be brought by a private citizen as well, uh, against the property itself. So it's not in persona, which is against the person. It's a typical type of a lawsuit that you find is actually against the property itself. The property has been declared a nuisance. And once that property is declared a nuisance by my court, then that uh, the owner has a responsibility, owner or interested party has responsibility to abate that nuisance by rehabbing that property or simply abating the nuisance. When that owner fails to do so, whether it's an in-town or out-of-town owner fails to do so, then I have the option of appointing a third party receiver who comes in, take full possession of the property, abates the nuisance, and then gets his actual cost, both direct and indirect, and 10% of all this costs on top of that. Uh, so it's not really a profit uh, motive, but it's Uh, mechanism, but it's really more so those who are interested in getting that flight.
0: Well, and the thing that Uh, I I thought was very, always very fair about that is that the owner has the ability to get the property back. You're not actually taking it from them. They have to pay for the rehab. They have to pay that fee. But in theory, they can get that property back.
1: Yes. So the owner uh, has the option to pay the receiver back. The statute says within 30 days of the lien uh, been assessed, they pay that receiver back. If that owner fails to do so, then a receiver has the place for, uh, for auction sale. So anybody can, the minimum bid would be whatever the receiver's lien is, then you, you pay the receiver and you can get the, that property as well. Uh, so it's not, it's really not a taking. It's really more so uh, abating the nuisance. Uh, people are tired of living next to these blighted properties next door to them. Uh, I like to call them momentum house or whatever, and you want to save it and protect it, but you're living in Germantown somewhere and this property has been neglected. And so uh, I think people really want to see those properties fixed up and rehab. And so you appoint someone. Uh, people in this community uh, understand taxes, understand if you don't pay your taxes, there's a possibility there's a tax sale and your property is taken away from you and by auction. Uh, but people don't understand uh, blight. They think they have a right to own blighted properties and pay their taxes, and you leave them alone. That ain't right. (laughs) (laughs) That's not right at all. So, we got to change that mentality and behavior here that if you own property in Memphis and Chevy County, vacant, real property, you need to address that property because it could become a lawsuit uh, very soon. So, you need to do something with it. You can sell it to someone who's willing to do something with it. So, but you can't just simply hold. Well, I know you're, really, you
0: know, your role is hearing those cases and not bringing them, but are th- it, but is that kind of, they would preservation act receivership. Is that most appropriate for bigger properties or just chronic ones? Or is there, is there a, a you know, a sort of an ideal case where that works really well?
1: It's really not. I mean, the, the most um, the common type cases of the typical residential property. It, I mean see, seriously when I, I jokingly say mom them house, but you get the concept. it, it sometimes is the house that you grew up in and people are no longer interested in neglecting but they don't want you to do anything with it. Uh, it could be any, in any neighborhood. it's just sitting there it's, it's, it's been neglected. it's been there for 10 or 15 years vacant <laughs> I mean, and it, it's, it's common. And so most of the properties are single family residential properties, there are a few commercial as well as uh, apartment complex, but for the most part, it is uh, Well, it's
0: funny uh, because talk. when I had Vincent Sawyer on, I asked him, you know, for a couple of examples of cases that he had worked on. And the first thing he told me about was like in Sea Isle, which I wasn't expecting. <laughs> you know, I wanted to hear an Orange Mound story. and But, of course, you're <laughs> right. These happen in every, like, uh, the owners move out, they get sick, and they no one's taking care of the house. I mean, this can happen anywhere.
1: Anywhere. And and I'm going to give a little backdrop. You know, I worked with the uh, city of Memphis for a long time. I started as an assistant city attorney. Then I became the senior assistant city attorney when code enforcement had its own division called community enhancement. (laughs) Then after that, and I was just advising code for many years. Then after that, I became the director or deputy director on the public works where I was directly involved with overseeing the operation of code enforcement. But when I was an attorney assigned, uh, we didn't have the Neighborhood Preservation Act available to us. So you either had properties that needed to be condemned and demolished, or you just warehouse them and let them stay there forever <laughs> because you didn't have any other tool. And so the Neighborhood Preservation Act gives us something so we can address those nuisance property that may not need to be condemned and demolished, they just need to be addressed and rehabbed and that nuisance abated. So, Uh, That's where that concept came from. We've expanded on that concept ever since. And I think it's a work- I totally agree. I
0: I mean, one thing it's done is it's allowed for the demolition of of properties that were nuisance properties that could, could never be redeveloped. And you don't like to think of things being torn down and a vacant lot, but sometimes it's better.
1: Sometimes it's better. But again, Neighborhood Preservation Act is trying to preserve it. You know, it doesn't quite meet that threshold that it needs to be demolished so it can be saved and that's the that's the point If these properties can be saved you you can knock them down and you You mentioned commercial
0: properties a minute ago i mean i guess i do i do think of a lot of these being you know the vacant and abandoned house but when you drive around um some of the less affluent neighborhoods you do see a lot of commercial properties that are in poor condition so you so so people bring those cases to you
1: as well Right. The uh, city of Memphis will bring those cases and, you know, those cases are definitely more complex. Uh, it takes a lot longer to rehab those commercial buildings. Uh, the resources are a lot greater. <laughs> so you have to work with those cases. But if the city of Memphis started demanding that we don't have so many vacant, blighted uh, warehouse commercial properties, then you start promising a lot more. So,
0: So the the environmental court judge, I guess, like many, if not all, the judges here is an elected position. Is that right? So how long are the terms?
1: Eight years. And as you as you may be aware, uh, I finished off Judge Potter's last term when I was first elected in twenty eighteen, and then I was elected. So you've got it.
0: So you've got a few years. Okay. Okay. All right. So So um. So, what do you want people to know about the environmental court, or that I didn't already ask you?
1: Well, uh, again, I think we touched on it. It is a very, very large court. I don't, I don't know if you would quite understand. I have two courtrooms: a uh, one courtroom predominantly hearing uh, environmental type cases, then another courtroom predominantly hearing traffic cases, and then there's three to four community courts in our neighborhoods. 1, Fifteen hundred environmental court cases per month. Three thousand. So it is pretty good. So I have two referees. I have a four staff, I have an operations manager, I have a court manager, and I'm picking up a new person very soon would be the community liaison I was going to ask if you had someone uh, because to
0: me, (laughs) that would be a very valuable position.
1: Yes, that position is going to be able to communicate with the public about problem properties and some are in court and some without. A lot of people don't understand where the cases are. They just say it's an environmental court and just really don't understand the complexities of what's going on in court. As well as there are a lot of people who still do not know how to navigate and engage their government. They see that by the property and they just make an assumption that it's it's in some sort of track to be dealt with. And that's just not the case. Uh, Code enforcement is literally complaint driven. If you're not complaining, <laughs> no one is driving to address that property, chances are nine times out of 10. And if it was possible, if it was addressed years ago and not properly addressed, you need to readdress it again. So I encourage every citizen not to assume that any blighted property in your neighborhood has actually been addressed by the government. You need to uh, to, to complain, 311. Well, and, and with Memphis.
0: technology, it's that the system's gotten a lot better. Um, and definitely and strength in numbers i mean if you you can complain and then your neighbor can complain certainly in my little neighborhood we do yes. that and um and then and then stay on top of you know the system updates you and ideally it's getting resolved right. um and it's it's the system's gotten i mean i'm sure there's still room for improvement, conversation for another day, but the system's gotten a lot better and it's easier to access, but I agree with you. Well, that's why I wanted to have you on to sort of demystify the the whole process.
1: Well, the system has gotten a lot better and it's not by accident. Uh, And I've worked on this for years, many, many years, identifying some of the common problems that we have and using a tool like 311 where you can actually call in complaint. And not just that, you can hold the inspectors accountable for actions taken or not taken. So you can actually track. So when you call in 311, you get a search request number. You have to hold you know, hold on to that search request number. That, that's everything. And now you can actually track online and see uh, where that service request uh, is at the moment, whether or not it was closed out and and we have I used the court to communicate with the public to let them understand you know, where that SR may be, you know, because sometimes the assumption is that it's in court and it may not be in court and they need to really understand uh, what happened to that case and why they may need to uh, uh, call and complain again. But I say that it has improved so much so now. Uh, we are, we're uh, far ahead of the game than we were 2007. I can describe 2007 for you <laughs> and try to let you understand how far we've come. Uh, But we still have a ways to go. There are still citizens who are are not satisfied and disgruntled because they feel the system is not working and they don't know whose fault it is, but they just know it's not working. And so we have to still continue to do better to uh, make sure the complaints that we see are actually being addressed. And and when you mentioned organizations. You're absolutely right. I tell everybody, if you're in a community, you're not the only one tired of that bl- uh, blighted property.
0: <laughs> well, Organized. and also there just be needs involved. to be more resources for things like home repair. I mean, that's that's there's never going to be enough. Um, but um, you know, people, you know, the proverbial hole in a roof that doesn't get repaired. Um, can ultimately take a house down, whereas if the roof was repaired, um, it would remain a safe and sound place to live. Um, and it's just a need for because he, he, no matter how efficient and effective you are, it's never going to be. You're you're one part of the you're one leg of the stool, I guess.
1: That's correct, and that's one of the reasons why I started toward uh, trying to get additional resources. I will be going before. The city council, again, uh, they have already approved $150,000 to get started, um, and hopefully uh, that's federal funds, and hopefully uh, we can have a place where uh, we can initially start to address some of these issues you just described, and the only person could live in that home and, and, you know, they just need a little assistance. So I have cases right now where I hold, I have put an assistance tag on it. And I keep it in my in my chambers until okay. resources are made available. Okay.
0: Uh, yeah, I love the foundation idea. That's really great. So, um, okay. Well, this has been super interesting. Well, you've been listening in Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I've been talking to Judge Patrick Dandridge, who's the environmental court judge here in Memphis and Shelby County. We've been having a little bit of an explainer on the environmental court, which was super interesting. So... So, Judge, thank you so
1: much for coming on the show. I I think I want to add one more thing just so everybody can get the breadth of uh, how large it is. We hear uh, housing code enforcement cases. We hear Shelby County code construction zoning cases. We have litter cases that we hear uh, at the new department called Environmental enforcement litter cases, animal cases, fire department cases, health department cases, uh, traffic cases, Highway Patrol cases, or so you get a uh, ticket on the interstate. Uh, we also hear Tennessee Wildlife, um, criminal nuisance cases, and the that, neighborhood. That's all
0: under your jurisdiction. I think you need some more help. <laughs> I think you should need some more helpers.
1: <laughs> 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 yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> but I enjoy it. I think we're doing a uh, good job. I expect to continue to move the court to the next level. Uh, using technology, uh, using data to drive to see where all the uh, uh, bottlenecks may be and try to make it sounds support, like everything's uh,
0: moving in the right direction. Uh, so uh, so keep up the good work.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.